They had done their tech businesses because they couldn't work for anyone else. They were born, died in the world entrepreneurs. They were crazy. They were aggressive. They were acerbic. You know, they were. Un- it was uncomfortable to talk to them sometimes, and they were awesome because they were doing what they were born to do. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. This week on Sand Hill Road, Silicon Valley veteran James Courier, who believes in network effects so much, he named his firm NFX. We've published extensively about the 17 different network effects that we've been able to Give identify. me an example of one network effect. Well, the one that everybody knows, of course, is what we call a, a personal direct network effect like Facebook. The more friends you have on Facebook, the more interesting Facebook is to you. Um, if you have a, a marketplace network effect, it's like an eBay or a Craigslist where you have buyers and sellers. And the more sellers you have, the more interesting it is to you as a buyer. Right. I mean, you, you can't sell a teapot to nobody. But if there's lots of people but no teapots, eBay doesn't work. So the more buyers you have, the more sellers show up. The more sellers you have, the more buyers show up. And so once you get going on that trajectory, it's it's very easy to keep that business going well. And it's very hard to compete with them. Yeah. You know, which is why Craigslist, I don't think they've changed their website since 2001. It might be 22 two or three years since they've actually changed the features on the website. And they're still going strong. Because they don't, they've got the, the network effect. That's the main feature of Craigslist is that everybody's there already. And so we are very interested in businesses that develop these network effects. And as I said, there's 17 of them. There's different ones. Uh, and we look for them. We help the companies we invest build them. We help them think through how to combine two or three or four of them. We talk about reinforcement where you get one and then you add a second and a third. And that's where you get your defensibility. And what's interesting about these startups is that you get the value of the business grows geometrically once you get defensible. You can grow linearly, you can grow geometrically, but if it's not defensible, there have been so many companies that have 50 million users, but they didn't really have a network effect, and now they're gone, they're dead. And you need to figure out how to build your product in such a way that you become defensible. And when you do, the value of your business goes from, let's say, 20 million to 200 million to 2 billion very quickly. And so we're in the business of helping people add those features and those ways of thinking to their products 
so that they can build the billion-dollar companies of the future. Does the potential for network effect come with the idea itself? Because I would imagine most startups would like to have a huge marketplace. Yes, give us a network effect, but you, that's not how that works. It's not that easy. You can't just slap on a network effect. So it's either built in or it's bolted on. We prefer the built in. So if you have an idea for a marketplace, your two-sided marketplace network effect idea is already built in. Yeah. In fact, you need to make it work in order to make the business work. Once it's working, then you have a very valuable business like a Poshmark or something like that or a Patreon even. So, um, yes, you're absolutely right. And in fact, we see that uh, 70% of all the market cap in, uh, in the tech world, maybe, maybe more than now, comes from businesses with network effects. And yet less than 20% of the business plans we see have network effects designed into them. There's a huge mismatch between what actually creates value and what the founders are thinking they should build. And we've been trying to educate people about that for a long time, and we continue to. Can you give me an example of a recent startup that you've invested in that where you said, yep, that's got the network effects built right into it? Um, there's a company called SageTap in, the, uh, in San Francisco that is building out a, uh, a network of B2B sellers and buyers. And right now they've got the, the buyers who are sages on their network. And then they've got all the companies that are paying to get access to them, to get reviews of their products, to get advice. And building that, net, that marketplace between those two folks is built-in idea of the network in the SaaS marketplace. So that's an example. And they're, they're in San Francisco. When you were younger, you were uh, at uh, Venture Capital Associated Battery Ventures, 1994, 30 years ago. Now you're a founding partner. Tell me about that journey. What did First of all, what did VC look like 30 years ago? It's a fantastic question, and I've been actually speaking about this at Harvard and Stanford over the last year or so. When I got into the business in 94, I was in my mid-20s, there were 40 active venture firms in the United States. That means there was 150 approximately general partners who were making a living by deploying capital into private high-tech companies, 150 in the United States. We had a $42 million fund at Battery when I joined as an associate. And we were one of the more active venture firms in the country with a $42 million fund. Today on signal.nfx.com, which is the place that founders go to find their investors, there's over 31,000 profiles of people making a living investing in high-tech startups. So, we are living in a startup industrial complex at this point. It has gotten giant. There's so much advice. There's so much knowledge diffusion about how to do startups, about how to invest in startups. In 94, there was none of that. There were so few people doing the job. In fact, we would really only look at businesses that had already bootstrapped to 3 million of annualized revenue. And most of the people who came into our office, they had bad suits. Like they had done their tech businesses because they couldn't work for anyone else. They were born, died in the world entrepreneurs. They were crazy. They were aggressive. They were acerbic. You know, they were un it was uncomfortable to talk to them sometimes. And they were awesome because they were doing what they were born to do. Uh, am, I, am I hearing that the opposite is true now, that there yeah, are every, young kids coming out of, uh, you know, Ivy League schools and I want to be an entrepreneur and there was no status to being an yeah. entrepreneur back then. There was no status or money even to, to, to being a founder, particularly of a high-tech business. Look, in the Wall Street Journal, it was my job to look at the Wall Street Journal on, in paper form in 1994. This is as the internet was just starting. And there was one half of one page in section B that was called technology and media. 
And that's where you would see everything about Disney or everything about Digital Equipment Corp. That was it. The whole, there was four sections to the Wall Street Journal. It's like 64 pages. A half of one page was committed to technology back at that time. It was nothing. Nobody cared. It was a backwater. Venture capital was a, was a flea on an ant on a tail of a dog. It was nothing. And then we started having all these successes, and then the status kicked in, and yes. the money kicked in. And everybody understands status and money, particularly when you put it in the social network movie in 2010. So we now have a whole generation of people who have been brought up on the idea of having status and money uh, and impact um, through being a coder in your dorm room and then building a trillion-dollar company. And that was a long time ago. I mean, that happened in 2004. The movie comes out in 2010, and it's been 14 years. So we are well into the startup industrial complex at this point. And the number of investors, the number of founders um, has grown probably per, past the carrying capacity of the technology to provide us with. Well, that's what I was going to ask, right, is that, that the number of people I've talked to who are out starting their own firm or people who, are, who have got, come into money, uh, probably through hard work and success. Well, now I'm an angel investor. They, that can't last. They, there are more. There aren't more VC firms than there are technology companies. But the the ratio is way off. It's close. There's probably about thirty thousand good startups a year around the world, and there's already again thirty one thousand plus startup investors on Signal.nfx.com. So you're right. It's getting close to that point. Look. With every technology wave, whether it's railroads or whether it's automobiles, there's a technology diffusion, competition comes in, uh, incumbents get formed, they are the better managers, they are the better brands, they have the better technologies, and they end up dominating their market sectors. We're just in the later stages of that with this technology cycle, which is B2B SaaS, which is consumer internet, and venture capital to a certain extent. Venture capital itself is a technology. In 94, very few people knew how to do it. There was, there was maybe two law firms in Boston who knew how to do these private equity uh, documents. And there's probably four law firms in the Bay Area. That was it. And if you wanted to do these documents and invest in these tech companies, you had to go to Ropes and Gray, right? Or you had to go to, you know, Fenwick. There, there was only a few you, who even knew the technology about how to do these. these. And was it a four-year vesting or is it eight-year vesting? Do you give stock to everyone in the company? That's crazy. Like nobody knew because the rules were just being written. And uh, so the, the diffusion of even how to invest in tech startups is itself a technology, and it was not diffused in 94, and now it's highly diffused. I've talked to some investors who, you know, it's it's not false modesty. They're genuinely modest. But uh, Rory O'Driscoll was one who said, listen, understand a lot of my success is just timing. Uh, I got into this when I did. Uh, and and it's, it's a much different world to become that venture capital associate now than it was when you started. I, th I think it is. Um, it's it's a lot safer, you know. Uh, there was a lot fewer of us back then. Uh, I ran the the I think it was called Capital Venture. It was a group I started in Boston to bring all of the young associates in town. There was about I don't know twenty five or thirty of us uh, to have parties, and we would literally rent out a bar and, and get everybody together, uh, you know, once every quarter. And uh, I would it was called Capital Venture, and I still have the invitations. We had to do it on paper, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, um, there wasn't a lot of uh, support. There wasn't a lot of uh, startups to look at uh, f at that time. And so now it is very different. It's very high status to do it now. Uh, everyone coming out of GSB wants to, to be an associate or principal at, a, at an NFX, and, and that's great. But it's very competitive now. It's very late. And, 
And I think they really need to realize that you don't really get paid for your work for 10 or 14 years. So you really need to do it out of love uh, more than anything else. Is there a analogous industry? You know, today is the thing in which only the crazies join, in which there were only a few of us back in 2023. Yeah. So, so the... You, you need to find things that are sort of barely legal to find that now. That because, makes sense. Because the knowledge of how to go after innovative businesses is also diffused knowledge now. And back in the 90s, you wanted to work for the big companies. You wanted to be safe. You wanted to ha- your, your status came from the old brands. And now, because of the social network movie and everything around it, status comes from being innovative. So the, even the idea of being innovative is now very well diffused and there's <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people trying to find this next thing you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the internet's done that to everything. Uh, an example is like my, my son is the youngest to sail solo across the Atlantic. How did he learn to do that? He watched YouTube videos because the knowledge about how to repair a water pump on a diesel engine on a boat is now visible and watchable on YouTube. So knowledge diffusion is happening for everything not just for technology and not just for venture capital, but specifically very much for this area. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, Rory, I mean, Rory is such a genuine, authentic guy. And so if anybody can get a chance to spend time with him, I would encourage him because you always learn so much talking to Rory because he actually says the truth. Yes, he He's does. not scared. No. You know, and uh, and he's just a great, great guy. And and I, I think he's absolutely right. There's just a lot of timing to this. And I don't think people should get too arrogant about their successes over the last 25 years because you were probably just the right age and living in the Bay Area and and you were here. Yeah. I, I, I certainly feel that way. And, you know, my friends and I who are all the same age, we all feel that way. That, you know, we kept doing things and eventually the lucky bus hit us. You know, it hit me earlier than others, but it hit others bigger uh, and later. You know, it, it just the lucky bus hit you. That's what happened. One of the exciting developments that has come up in just about every conversation I've had in the last year or so is AI. Uh, as we were setting up the the recording gear, you were finishing up a, a, a board meeting in which you were encouraging founders to, you know, explore AI. Um, it's complicated enough that that is not something just anyone can. I mean, you could put a wrapper on one, right? I mean, that's easy enough, but that's not a defensible business. Uh, that's an exciting new thing that I don't think we've seen since maybe, you know, the iPhone where mobile all of a sudden was something that that just was sprung upon us. Yeah, and I think... Um you know, we started writing about this uh, a long time ago, and um, we've invested in, I don't know, over 25 AI companies over the last four or five years. So we've been watching it all the way along and, and, and participating. It's definitely a, a big change, and as mobile was. I think we have to look. I, I did an analysis recently where I looked at who captured the value of mobile. Was it the new mobile companies like Uber and DoorDash and and Poshmark and whatnot? And if you total up all of their market caps, it's about five hundred billion. But if you look at the market caps of the incumbents that had existed before two thousand and eight, <laughs> it's now many trillions. Mm-hmm. And they captured most of the the value of the mobile revolution, about ninety three percent by our calculation. And so I think the same thing is going to happen with AI that the incumbents will capture the vast majority of the of the value. And so the VCs and the new startups are going to have to um, you know, try very hard to capture a lot of that value. But there is no doubt that it is irresponsible at this point to not have AI in your business plan. 
In the same way that we would say it's irresponsible not to have a network effect in your business plan, it's the same thing with, with AI. It's just what's happening. It's, you know, network effects is how you defend defensibility and true value to create a, you know, a really valuable, impactful company, which is the type of businesses we want to invest in. Um, uh, and then AI is what's going to give you your product differentiation, your, 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 your incredible experience that no one's seen before that will give you the, the, the opening in the market for you to enter in a world of a lot of software incumbents already. Uh, and so I think you need that leverage. I think you need probably to have AI as a big part of your leverage. Otherwise, it's hard to justify why now? Why is it going to work now? You told an interviewer about, it was a question that was on my sheet of paper too, and it's a natural interview question is, you know, what, what, what is the thing that didn't work out? Uh, and you told an interviewer it was a foray into healthcare. Yeah. Uh, and as I listened to you explain it, it was a bit disheartening, right? I mean, yeah, a bunch of smart people got tried to make healthcare work and couldn't. Yeah. And so we don't do it anymore, um, which bodes poorly for healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. You know, look, we do invest in healthcare companies and uh, we just do it very cautiously. And, you know, my experience was that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I started a company uh, in the healthcare IT space. Um, and it was very hard. And there was probably about, I was tracking about 70 companies that got venture back during that three or four year period that were trying to do it. And only two ended up really returning a lot of capital to their investors. Uh, and literally the other 68 sort of died. Um, we didn't die, but we raised 68 and sold for 144. It's not a great return for the investors. And it's not a great return on time for all the engineers and all the designers that were working on it. Now, there are pockets within healthcare that do much better. Um, pockets like uh, TechBio, where we invest heavily. I would say 20, 25% of our investments are in tech bio now. Now explain to the listener because they're going to think, wait, no, 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 it's called biotech. Right. So biotech is about the biology. Tech bio is where you're using software to lead the product development in a biological area. So how are you going to design new pharmaceuticals? Use software to do it. Use AI to do it. Uh, so if you're going to be more heavily indexing on software capabilities, even though it's related to the biotech area where it's agriculture or healthcare or whatever, that we call tech bio. And Omri Drory is my partner uh, who invented the term tech bio, um, has the tech.bio website and started a fund called tech bio before he joined NFX's uh, full-time partner here. And we've done a lot of investing in companies like Mammoth Biosciences and C2I and other things, which are all software-driven you know, uh, expor experiments in the bio area. So in healthcare, we believe in tech bio as investments. We think that medical devices can be good. We don't invest in medical devices. We don't know anything about it. So that's not a sector we do, but we think people can do that. But when it comes to sort of software in the healthcare space, it's proven really, really hard. There's so many forces aligned against you building a big and important company. You can build a company, but it's going to take 12 to 14 years and you're going to sell for 60 million and it's going to be a long slog. The the way the whole system is set up. Now, um, you know, we uh, are still investing in healthcare companies, healthcare services companies and other things, but we just do it very cautiously. And it is, it's disheartening for this country where we're spending 21 plus percent of our GDP on healthcare and not getting the same outcomes other nations are getting because our system is so messed up. The way I describe it is everyone in the system is now behaving badly. Mm. The consumers are using healthcare as entertainment. The doctors are using it to just drive revenues. They're selling 
back inserts that nobody needs. Uh, they're just pushing pills. The consumers are asking for pills. The doctors don't want to do it, but then they do it. The pharma companies are charging, you know, $200,000 a year for their, you know, niche drugs because that's the only way they can pay back their R&D costs. It, it's, it's um, everyone's behaving badly uh, and it's hurting the country and I think it's hurting our, our citizens and it's a, it's a stalemate. It's like, it's like on a chessboard where all the pieces are laid out and whoever moves the next piece loses. Yeah. So nobody wants to move from where they're getting their revenue today. So we'll see how it plays out. Hopefully technology can play a role, but um, the forces that are making money today in the system, like Cerner and Epic, who I consider to be America's number one enemy, now that the cigarette companies have been somewhat tamed, I would say Cerner and Epic are probably our number one challenge with their network effects and their embeddedness um, and how horrible their software is and uh, the system that their software maintains. Um, we, we have to fight them. We have to replace what we have with something far, far better that's going to have much better outcomes. And, and we've been saying that now for 15 years and there's been no movement. So, But it's it, not you. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. I just can't. I can't. I'm not going to be willing to, to shed the tears and, and, you know, run uphill in sand. It's, um, there's plenty of other things to do. Sand Hill Road will be right back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. To the person who's listening to this on their way to work at a high-tech firm who constantly hears people like me on television telling them about layoffs... Also on TV, I'm telling people that unemployment is near historic lows, consumer confidence at a three-year high, inflation is coming down. It, there's this bifurcation of our economy all of a sudden. What, what should we think about the next five years in Silicon Valley? I think the next five years in Silicon Valley is going to, I mean, honestly, be excellent. I think the last two have been very bad. I think people have been you know, having their comeuppance. I think they've been learning about how to actually manage to make profitable businesses. I think the VCs have been learning about marking their 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 marks down uh, and and uh, sort of talking to LPs in a more humble way. I think I think it's been really really good for us. Uh, we got 
drunk on a money culture uh, that started infecting this place. This place uh, has been amazing because we have been a metrics and product-focused culture uh, and not a money-focused culture. Uh, other cities are money-focused cultures, and they have um, they have more impoverished innovation, you know, mm. tech sectors because of that. Um, and and we always escape that. And I think the money culture has been infecting us, and it's impoverishing us. I think the last two years has been really good culturally for for the valley. Um, and as a result, you know, hard times make good people, and good people make good times. So I think we're gonna we're gonna make uh, or hard people make good times. And I think the next five years are going to be great. I think we have plenty of capital in the VC industry. I think we have a lot of uh, VCs who are now much more educated, having mm-hmm. gone through a downturn, because mm-hmm. we didn't have one for 13 years. Um, and so I think that uh, they weren't behaving wisely. And so I think people will behave more wisely going forward. Uh, and I think that's going to make for better founders, and it's going to make for, for better investors and better board discussions. And I think because of the AI wave, there will be opportunities. Um, and I think we're going to be diving deeper into uh, you know deep tech. I think we're going to see a lot more in the robotics area and in climate and all these things. So we're going to start to expand out of B2B SaaS, which is you know a playbook everyone now knows the playbooks too, and so it makes it hard. Um, and there's a lot of incumbents now in B2B SaaS. So I think we're going to start expanding out of that. And I think it's I think it's going to be a great five years. There's people are going to be trying harder. They're going to be more honest. They're going to be authentic, more humble. And I think that's going to produce a much better outcome than we saw in the last two years. Courier's wisdom comes from decades in the venture business and from his experience as a five-time founder. Uh, The first was, was it Tickle? It was Tickle. You'll have to forgive me. I don't remember Tickle. Yeah, right. It was a long time ago. But it was like the 15 most popular website on the Yeah, 18 for a long time. We were stuck at sort of 15, 16, 20 (laughs) for a long time. For about two and a half years, we were in the top 20 most popular websites in the world. We started in 1999. We were one of the first companies to do A-B testing. We invented the email address importer so that we could like send out the dog test to all your friends so you could share and compare scores. Um, We had no marketing spend. And people just love talking about themselves. And so people were taking tests on the, on the site about themselves and then sharing their results with their friends. And uh, it became incredibly viral. So back when the internet was 600 million people, we had 150 million people who have registered on the website. Oh, wow. And we'd originally called the company Emode, which was the worst name ever, E-M-O-D-E. And we kept having to spell it and no one could remember it. So we eventually changed the name to Tickle. The board almost fired me. They said, we finally have a profitable $30, $40 million company, and this guy's changing the name to Tickle. It sounds like a porn site. This is a horrible <laughs> name change. And actually, I was like, no, this is a fantastic name change. Back when you could get the URL, too. Well, yeah, that was a whole thing. It cost us 50 grand, and we had to actually go to court to get it because <laughs> the guy had signed a contract, and then he didn't do it. Anyway, we got it, and it uh, immediately our traffic went up by 30% the next month because the name Tickle was so much better than email. Totally. It was memorable and spellable and all that. And then uh, six months later, we we're on the cover of Business 2.0 magazine is the way to change the name of your company. <laughs> and so my board was, you know, kind of shocked that, that we had nailed it. And um, yeah, so it was called Tickle. And in fact, the, the engineering team came to me after I announced the name change. Um, and uh, they, they said, we're going to quit. We, you know, the I don't want to work for Tickle. I don't want to work for Tickle. It's yeah. ridiculous. It's a 1970s silly, women's antiperspirant. And it sounds like a porn site. And it's just embarrassing. And I said, trust me, this is going to be great. <laughs> now, then you sell it to, to Monster, which was a, a job It was board. a job thing. So most of our revenue was coming from tests around career tests. Ah. Uh. 
and IQ tests and things that were related to careers. And we had a matchmaking site and Monster is a matchmaking site between yeah, resumes yeah. and things. So they figured that we had a lot of thinking about that. And we had a social network, which had 30 million users. And they knew that LinkedIn was coming up and they needed uh, a response to LinkedIn. So we had all three of the things that they wanted, which was a response to LinkedIn, matching for jobs, and the tests to drag people in. So they were getting about 30,000 new resumes a day, and we were getting about 50,000 new registered users a day. So combining us, they would start bringing in a lot more resumes. And each resume cost them eight and a half dollars in marketing to get. And so if we were going to bring them in, let's say 4,000 a day, we would very quickly pay for their acquisition price, which was about $110 million. You have since become a uh, an investor in all kinds of interesting things: DoorDash, Lyft, uh, uh, Patreon. Uh, Jack Conti, uh, yeah. tell tell me, he's a great guy. Yeah, uh, great tell guy. me about that first meeting. So Jack, um, Jack and I actually never got to be good friends. I was brought in as a growth advisor for them, um, and and was brought in to make my investment uh, to help them with growth. But then they started growing so fast that they didn't need me. And so he and I never developed a really strong relationship, but he's, he's done a, uh, an amazing job of navigating over the last decade. Um, it's been tough. It's been tough. You know, there's a lot of people who are bringing a lot of porn on the site that he's had to sort of squash down. Um, there's been a lot of sort of, you know, political issues inside the firm. It's been tough. He has a really good heart and he's, um, he's, he's done a remarkable job. And I think that, that Patreon is really going to have a resurgence here. I think that they're sitting with the brand, they're sitting with the distribution, and I think they're going to get their engineering and their product house in order this year, and I think you're going to see really good things from them this year. And Iman Abuzaid over at Incredible Health. Iman is just, she's an animal. She uh, came to us uh, into our accelerator years ago, and we were running that between 2015 and 17, um, and she was doing uh, a different type of a business and related to the healthcare space. And, uh, you know, she herself being MD and everybody in her family being doctors. And we just said, let's sit down and think about what would be a, a bigger opportunity. And she came up and we talked through a bunch of ideas. And this was the one that she picked on. We helped her name the company, uh, Incredible Health. And uh, she and Rome uh, have just executed to a T, executed to a T for the last seven years. It's been remarkable to watch. Incredible Health, I think their last round was at 1.6 billion valuation. Um, and, uh, you know, really solving an important problem for the country, which is, you know, helping, helping hospitals hire nurses. We have a huge problem of not having enough nurses in the hospitals. And so they're doing something good for the world and they're building a big business and they're doing it with incredible execution and with incredible class. So it's been, it's been just my luck to have been introduced to her, um, through actually Satya Patel over at, um, Homebrew. That's how we met. That's how we met Iman. Looking just over your life. Um, you went to Phillips Exeter Academy, one of the oldest schools in the U.S., and the home of the oldest football rivalry in the U.S., uh, then uh, B.A. at Princeton, M.B.A. at Harvard Business School. Your high school cost $64,000 a year to go to, or it does now. I don't know what it does then. Did you come from money? It's a great question. So my dad was a carpenter. My mom was a music teacher who made $6.5 an hour. We lived at the end of a dirt road, uh, and uh, I was going to public school. And uh, one day, this guy named uh, James Cody beat me up. And uh, as my friend Lance was picking me off the ground, he said, uh, don't worry, we're going to go to prep school. And I said, what's prep school? We were in sixth grade. I was like 11 or 12. And he said, uh, we're going to go to prep school. And I said, do they fight at prep school? And, then he, <laughs> and he says, no, they don't have fights at prep school. And I said, I went home and I said, dad, I want to go to prep school. And he said, how did you hear about prep school? <laughs> I said, Lance, because his dad, uh, his brother had gone to St. Paul's in, in New Hampshire. So Lance, my, my friend, knew about it. 
And so that's that's how I got introduced to the idea. And so, um, and you went to the prep schools of all prep schools. I mean, this is the yeah, so, so if you I, were to you know make a movie about you know uh, yeah uh, yeah so it would be so thought. so my, my dad said okay, and so he asked the the you know the the woman at, at our public middle school, what do I do? And yeah. she said you should take this test called the SSAT. And so I took the test and I did well, and so um, they let me apply to to Exeter, and they gave me almost a full scholarship. You know, so I think my dad was paying twelve hundred dollars a year for me to go there. I think at that time it was fourteen thousand to go, and um, uh, and so I was just lucky. I was inducted into this community of people who understand how the world works. And here's the network effect. And, and I was exactly, and it, that's exactly right. It was a network effect that I got drawn into, uh, and I was sort of plucked out of this other environment that I had been in. And um, uh, and from there, they just told me. They said, "Where do you want to go to college?" Do you want to go to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton? Because you can pick one, but don't apply to more because of my grades. And I had studied a lot of math and physics and chemistry, and I was kind of on my way to being an engineer. And they said, um, you know, uh, about 42% of the class will go to an Ivy League. You, you can pick one of the big three. Which one? And I said, what's the farthest one from here? And they said, well, Princeton's the furthest one from here. And I said, well, I'll go there then. And so... Um, uh, so I went off to Princeton and it was just a delight. It was just an amazing place. It was like home. I loved it so much. I took a year off to start a company and then I came back because I didn't, I didn't want to graduate so fast. And then, uh, when I got out of that, um, I had, uh, eight different jobs, six months times eight over four years. And then eventually settled for three years in at Battery Ventures in Boston. I lived in Beijing and Hong Kong and lived in LA and lived in Atlanta and, and just did a lot of tech stuff in LA with, with broadband before TCP IP was a thing. And I just lucked into that. I was like, wow, this is kind of interesting that we're all going to put movies and TV down these cables and zeros and ones. And I kind of became enamored of tech uh, and uh, ended up at Star TV in Hong Kong doing satellite broadcasting for the entertainment industry and then studying Mandarin in Beijing and and then sent home because I was misdiagnosed with a heart disease that I didn't have. And and then uh, my friend Lance, his dad, his dad was at the hospital. And, and so his friend diagnosed me and said, you're fine. You just have an athletic heart, you know, and so, and so I got a job at Battery Ventures and then they, I had a inter funny interview with a guy named Ollie Kerm. He says, why do you want to work here? And I said, oh, because uh, I want to help founders. He's like, nah, we don't help founders. And I said, uh, he said, why do you want to work here? And I said, because I want to make a lot of money. He's like, no, you're not going to make any money here. We're going to pay you nothing. And uh, I said, okay, why should I want to work here? And he says, because we're going to teach you how wealth is generated and this will serve you for the rest of your career. And you can't get this information anywhere else. And I said, okay, that's a good, that's a good idea. And he, so he said, all right, I'm going to pay you $27,000 a year. And I said, great, happy to do it. And so I was working 12, 14 hours a day there, six days a week for three years. And then at the end of that, they, Rick Frisbee, the, the managing partner who had founded the firm, he walked into my office with a piece of paper. He put it on my desk, goes, here's your recommendation to Harvard Business School. Go to Harvard Business School. And so I said, okay. So I went to Harvard Business School. Whatever happened to James Cody? I don't know. I don't know. I hope he's okay. James Courier, angel investor in DoorDash, Lyft, and Patreon, and founding partner at NFX. NFX, by the way, has a ton of content for curious startup entrepreneurs on its website, nfx.com. Next week on Sand Hill Road. I grew up in India as a child of American pop, pop culture. In fact, that's how I learned English. Like, I didn't learn it at schools. I watched it by watching Knight Rider and David Hasselhoff and, like, A-Team and, like, shows that don't exist anymore. 
Bharat Vasan of TPB on the future of food. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.